tonight. And after conclusion of that, if you would respond, as is tradition here with thanks be to God. Let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for us. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that, he who also, who, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that great, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but for the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of my favorite TV shows growing up was Jeopardy. And so for 200 points, for famous opening lines in books, the clue is this. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven and we were all going direct the other way. Anybody know where that book and author is? Tale of Two Cities, Charles, actually the correct answer is what is The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Um, There you go. And as was immortalized by this famous opening passage of Charles Dickens' book was these dual-faceted dichotomies that are going on, these opposing factors, right? 
We have the best of times, the worst of times, wisdom and foolishness. So I felt a lot like <clears throat> when I was reading the passage from Paul in, in this section of 2 Corinthians, it felt like a page out of Dickens' book, or better yet, maybe Dickens got a little bit of the Apostle Paul back in the 1800s when he was read, uh, writing this, this famous work. And we heard it throughout the Scripture reading, right? Disgraceful, underhanded ways versus the truth, verse 1. Veil and blindedness with the light of the gospel, verse 4 and 6. Proclaiming ourselves and pro proclaiming Christ. Death and life, outer self and inner self, light momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. Things that are seen, things that are unseen, and things that are transient, and things that are eternal. There are dichotomies, there are opposing forces throughout this section of Paul's letter. And there is one particular dichotomy that I wanted to focus on for tonight's passage, and that is jars of clay and treasure. Jars of clay and treasure. The three things that we'll look at from the passage tonight is, what is the earthenness? What is the, the worldliness of the jars of clay? And contrasted to that is, what is the treasure that is held in these jars of clay? The earthenness of the jars of clay, the treasure that is held in these jars, and finally, the application. What does that mean for us? <clears throat> so, as we jump into the first point, the earthenness of the jars of clay, this, this phrase, this imagery that Paul would use that treasure is stored in jars of clay would have piqued the interests of Paul's listeners and readers uh, in this time. They would have been saying, wait a minute, why would something so fragile and easily broken and something used for everyday common use be used to store treasure. Wouldn't you expect to have a solid oak or metal chest to secure your treasure or maybe even something beautiful and, and painted and ornate to hold something as valuable as treasure, something that you can flaunt. Anybody have any fine china at home that they got from their wedding day that they haven't used in a while? Or even as you think about it, when you're kind of personally slaving away at cooking a meal for a special occasion, maybe for your spouse, maybe for your family, and you spend hours and hours and, and sweat and maybe a little bit of blood into making this, this meal, it seems a little bit off-putting to then put that meal on a styrofoam plate. So why use this imagery of jars of clay for us to store something as valuable as treasure? Well, as you may have <clears throat> assumed and guessed and maybe even gotten from a, a bit of our confession of sin earlier, the purpose of using the jar of clay imagery is to highlight its fragility, to highlight how brokenness and fragile it actually is. And <clears throat> sure, there's, a, there's an art artistic motif to using jars of clay. Maybe you're a sculptor, and, and using jars of clay is something that is valuable to you. Me personally, as a Korean, Korean-American, jars of clay were extremely important for fermenting foods, and a lot of great Korean cuisine comes out of jars of clay. But even as you imagine holding a jar of clay, a raw hasn't been in the furnace yet jar of clay, you can feel the, the, the dust coming off the surface. You can feel the grains and, and the brittleness of that jar and, and, and sense as you hold it how fragile it would be even if you dropped it from a couple inches off the ground. The purpose of using this imagery is to highlight how broken it could be and how fragile it is. 
And at the end of the day, Paul is telling us very simply, we are the jars of clay. You are the jar of clay. And it shouldn't take us long to agree with Paul when we consider the fragility of jars of clay with ourselves, with our lives, with our context and our circumstances, so that when we see some of the qualifiers that he uses for this imagery, we are afflicted, we are perplexed, we are persecuted, we are struck down, that there isn't a force or a factor in this world that isn't stressing at us, bombarding us, causing us heartache, hardship. We are afflicted. We have bodily afflictions that we deal with on a regular basis, maybe on an everyday basis. For those of us who have dealt <clears throat> or are dealing with sickness, whether acute or chronic, mild or terminal, for those of us who have been afflicted, our families, our, our communities, our, our close-knit um, people that we know have been struck by tragedy, by loss, sudden or anticipated. We are perplexed. Paul focuses on the inward nature of things that are going on, things that are warring for our attention, our, our influence, the, the mental health issues that exist in, today, in today's society, the voices of influence that come from radio, from TV, from, from politicians, from friends, from different communities, the cultures that we live in, whether in this church, whether in this city, as a campus minister, we talk all the time about the culture that exists at CMU and, and what sorts of message is brought out, even in everybody's subconscious deeds and words. We're persecuted. We have these relational strifes. Maybe for the witness that we have, maybe for actually believing in Jesus, we have been persecuted. We have been mocked. We have been questioned and, and discredited. Or maybe there are other relational hardships going on. Maybe there's this one or two people that you've had in your life that you've been wanting reconciliation with, and, and that quite hasn't happened yet. And we're struck down. Life circumstances hit us hard, and they seem to group together, whether it's your finances, whether you're kind of living paycheck to paycheck, whether you're in a steep of debt. We've seen natural disasters. We, we've just come out of a massive global pandemic that interrupted everything uh, that we considered to be normal. So that when we see Paul use this image of jars of clay, we know that that means us. We've been afflicted. We've been persecuted. We've been perplexed. We've been struck down. We are broken people. We live in a broken world around us. Just turn on the news for about five minutes, and you can see the reality of the earthenness of who we are as jars of clay. So then it begs the question, why would the owner of this treasure choose to use jars of clay? Why would God, creator of the universe, choose to use you and me to store his treasure? Why does God choose us? Well, verse 7 clearly shows out to us that the purpose for storing treasure in jars of clay was not necessarily just for our benefit, but to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That the surpassing power of this entire world belongs to God 
and not to us. So that when we consider those situations where we are afflicted, perplexed, struck down, and persecuted, it's not up to us to figure out, okay, how do I get around this? What is this trying to teach me? How can I be a better person? But it's for us to, it's to lead us in prayer to God to say, God, you are in control. How are you calling me to respond in these situations? All things belong to God. All of the surpassing power, all of the goodness of the world, all of the hopes of reconciliation, of restoration, of wholeness resides in God. And that same God chooses to place his treasure, the hope and light of the gospel, in people like you and in people like me. And he invites us into that ministry, as Pastor John preached last week from chapter 3, that we are made ministers, partakers of this very covenant, that this work that God is doing to seek reconciliation and restoration of his creation, we get to be a part of that. So what implication does that have for us? First of all, it humbles us. If you haven't heard it before, if maybe you haven't heard it a lot in your life, I think Derek made a great point this morning while, as he was presiding that we are not perfect. We live in a society that is catered towards boosting our own self-esteem, which, which is good to a certain extent, but to realize we are jars of clay. You are a jar of clay. I am a jar of clay. I am marked and marred by a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma that has happened in my own life. And yet, still, God still chooses to use me, to store his treasure in me and in you. So I'm sorry if this is a wake-up call for you, but we are jars of clay. We're very broken and fragile. But secondly, rather than focusing on the, the bowl or the medium in which this treasure is stored, it helps us to highlight the very treasure itself. Not so much on the, the fine china or the styrofoam plate, but what is this bowl holding? What is this treasure? And that's where our second point will lead us. And the question I want to ask us before we jump into it is, is do you believe that what is stored in you is actually treasure? Do you believe that the gospel is treasure in your life? Or do we live as though we are the fine china, serving up fast food, serving up something completely junk food. Um, Pastor Matt used an illustration from the Civil War era, so I thought I would match his efforts this evening. On January 1st, 1863, it was the famous day in which the Emancipation Proclamation was declared by President Abraham Lincoln to free all American slaves in the country. And this was a monumental um, litigation and, and, and court decision and uh, and just mo political movement for us to bring us out of a very large systemic injustice. But as historians were recalling uh, the after effects of the proclamation, uh, th these were some of their uh, observations. When speaking about what actually happened to the slaves, about a quarter of them, a quarter of the four million slaves that were freed from the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, a quarter of them were, found themselves to be sick or have died from starvation about eight years after the proclamation itself. And I quote here, many ended up in encampments called contraband camps that were often near Union Army bases. 
However, conditions were so unsanitary and food supplies limited, shockingly, some of the contraband camps were actually former slave pens, meaning newly freed people ended up being kept virtual prisoners back in the same cells that had previously held them. In many such camps, disease and hunger led to countless deaths. Often, the only way to leave the camp was to agree to go back to work on the very same plantations from which the slaves had recently escaped. I bring up this illustration as, and ask the question, do we believe that this proclamation of the gospel is actually treasure for us, or do we continue to live in a life of slavery to sin and in our old ways? What effect has the gospel had in our lives, and do we consider that to be our deepest treasure in this world? The very nature of the one who is storing this treasure in us has the ability to speak life just by using his very words. As Paul harkens back to the the creation narrative where God said, let light shine out of darkness. Just by the very power of God speaking, creation comes into existence. And this is the same person who places his treasure in you. The creation narrative where God made all of the known universe out of nothing but just his breath. So that one day, the very light that he spoke into existence would shine on you and would shine on others because of the light that shines out of you. The very treasure that we hold is in the midst of brokenness, yes. It is stored in jars of clay so that as we go back to verses 8 through 10, it's so that we might see actually the brokenness in us. We are afflicted, yes, but we are not crushed. It is impossible to live a suffering-free life. The gospel does not guarantee that if you believe, then you'll live this grand, incredible life without any suffering. But in the midst of suffering, do we believe in a God who is capable of and putting us on a trajectory towards restoration? We are afflicted, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Constantly, we are bombarded by these cacophony of voices, of influence, of people warring for our attention, our, our affirmation. But we hear the one voice of, of peace, of comfort that places everything else into perspective when we come to God in word and in prayer. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Even when the people closest to us, hurt us, forsake us, betray us, we are tied so closely in union with somebody who would come to die for the very things that make us fragile, that make us broken, so that our status would be secured in Him. We have this union with Christ. We're persecuted but not forsaken. We're struck down but not destroyed. In this very brokenness, in this very fragility that we have, we actually exhibit what Christ came to die for. That when you consider your life, when you consider everything that's hard and messy and broken about it, some things that you might be ashamed of, I'd encourage you to take a look at those things, to take an honest inventory of those things, to be able to name it and say, this is what Jesus came to nail on the cross. 
But as you think about your circumstances, the the different factors that make life stressful for you and hard, and, and really hard to persevere, really hard to move on, say, this is what Jesus came to die for. The power of the treasure that we have that is Jesus Christ. The power of this treasure isn't a power that makes good people better or even bad people good, but this is a power that makes dead people come to life. That when we consider what Paul's words were in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses. We weren't just dying or drowning or being resuscitated. We were dead. And that the very power of the gospel, the very power of this treasure, is that it doesn't just make you better people with better morals. It makes you who were once in death now come to life. So that as we consider all of our brokenness, all of the messiness in our lives, Jesus says, I will claim that and die for it on the cross so that now you may have life in me. Now, this is the power that resides in you, the very power that spoke creation into existence, the very power that brought Jesus, the eternal Son of God, down on this earth to walk with us, to dine with us, to commune with us, to walk in our temptation, and the very power that rose him from the grave, that emptied that tomb, resides in you. That is a treasure that is being held in us as God's jar of clay. So what does that mean for us as we close? How can we apply this to ourselves? The main application is Paul bookends this passage in verse 1 and then again in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The disturbing and sobering truth about our lived experience for many of us, if not all of us, is that there are plenty of reasons that we have to lose heart. That as we go about our weeks, as we go about our schedules, as we consider everything that we're responsible for, the people that we have that are counting on us, the, the hard life factors, the, the hard truths that we hear of the news going on in the world around us, There's every reason to lose heart. But Paul encourages us, Paul encourages the Corinthian church, and Paul encourages us today to not lose heart because of the very treasure that we hold in us. A belief in the gospel does not negate all of the brokenness that we see. It's not as a way of saying, well, Yes, I have all of these pains. You have all of these pains. Let's just get over it. Right? It's, it's, let's just get to another point. It doesn't minimize those things because we know that Jesus came to reside with us even in our pain and our sorrow. And as we look at him sitting with Mary and Martha in the death of their brother Lazarus, we see him weeping with us, for us. So it's not a, the gospel is not a way of minimizing our pain, but it's also not a, a means in which we just sit in our despair. The gospel doesn't just compel us to say, woe is me, and often paralyzing things that happen in our own lives and in the world around us. We do not wander blindly or aimlessly as those who have no hope, but we do not lose heart and we move forward as we, are, as we have been invited to be ministers, to be partakers in this new 
covenant. So the gospel helps us balance this holy resilience that God calls us to. Do not lose heart. We know that there are so many reasons for us to lose heart even today. But heed these words, heed the treasure that we have in Christ. In the midst of persecution and pain and hurt and betrayal and hardship and injustice, Paul calls us, God calls us to not lose heart. Secondly, is to understand that we have been made partakers in this covenant. Do we believe that what we have is treasure? And how do you see the ways in which you've been invited to partake in this covenant, to be ministers of this covenant? As much as I love our uh, denomination and our traditions and the rigorous uh, path it takes to be an ordained minister in our church, it doesn't mean that the bulk and the meat of our ministry is just done by those who can stand up here. But we invite every one of us, and that's what I love about our, our membership class, is that this is an every member ministry, that we believe in a priesthood of all believers, of, of the saints working together with us in bringing the light of the gospel to others. Now, how many of you have been impacted by somebody other than Pastor Matt or Pastor Joseph or myself or Pastor John, but it was actually somebody from your community group? somebody from who was sitting next to you at a service one Sunday, one Sunday. somebody who saw you uh, with, with a strained expression on your face and just asked you how you were doing. That often the hands and feet of the ministry of this church is not done by the people who are paid or seemingly qualified, but it's done by the brothers and sisters that you share life with. And God invites you to be a partaker, to be a minister of that covenant. And I praise God for the many ministers that I've seen in my short time here. Show me Christ. Show us the power of the Holy Spirit to know that this very power that we'll celebrate tonight in this communion in a couple weeks at Easter, the very power that emptied that tomb resides in you, and there is a way in which you can become a partaker in this covenant as earthen jars of clay as we are. So do not lose heart. Press into God. Press into the Lord. Press into the ministry, this new covenant that we've been invited to be a part of. Let me pray for us.